Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode is one that I was very excited to do. We have two guests, Steve Gallo, who's the chief scientist at AIBS, and Matt Hayes, who's the director of Publons, which is housed within Clarivate Analytics. They join me to discuss and compare two different publications on grant review and the sustainability of that system. One of the studies comes from AIBS and the other from Publons, and they bore a lot of similarities that made for interesting points of discussion. It was a really great conversation, and I think it gets to the heart of how good research is identified and funded, which really underlies the entire scientific enterprise and is one of the reasons that AIBS and Publons are discussing potential ways to collaborate in the future. But I'll let our guests describe. Matt and Steve, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, James. Yeah, thanks, James. It's a pleasure to be here. So I thought to get us started, you know, it might be useful to set a baseline for our listeners, you know, kind of on what grant review is and the role that it plays in the scientific process as we know it. You know, how does this process typically work from, you know, various funding agencies? Um, well, here um, in the U.S., and Matt uh, can tell us more about how um, you, they do it in the U.K., but... Um, uh, you know, for groups like the National Institutes of Health or the National Science Foundation, uh, typically uh, they'll receive proposals uh, throughout the year. Um, they're uh, typically, for the National Institutes of Health, they'll have a, what they call a request for proposals. So there'll be a specific time frame that you'll have to submit a proposal and um, uh, it'll be, have a deadline. And uh, then you'll submit it and then it'll be sent out and uh, scientists who have expertise in that particular research area will be recruited and uh, recruited for a, typically a panel uh, which will meet in a face-to-face -face way where they'll discuss the proposals that they're reviewing and kind of give them a, a ranking or a score and after that they'll use the, those kinds of uh, rankings and scores to, uh, to make the final uh, funding decisions. So in NIH, it's it's uh, like that. In NSF, uh, National Science Foundation, it's slightly different in in the sense that I think they, uh, at least for some of the directorates, they uh, they allow proposals throughout the year, so there is no deadline necessarily. And some of those are reviewed on panels, and some of those are also reviewed uh, sometimes through teleconference uh, panels that don't meet face to face. And other times, even uh, people just uh, do what they call a mail review, where they'll review things over the internet and do it that way. So there's a wide variety of ways to uh, procedurally do peer review, but in general, we're recruiting scientists to uh, use their expertise to, to evaluate uh, research proposals and, and kind of give them a, a ranking so that we can make a funding decision. I know it's a, a great explanation. Um, from uh, my perspective, looking at uh, the UK and other countries worldwide, uh, there is one um, type of peer review to add to that definition, which would be where sometimes individual grant applications are reviewed by individual researchers. Um, so some funders will commission researchers to review um, a specific grant application, and all of those, all of these different reviews are collected together um, and then reviewed collectively by a grant panel so that the panel is able to review lots of grant applications in one go, all of which will have had some prior peer review from um, one or more individual researchers. So I would add, uh, I would add that to the um, type of grant, types of grant peer review as well. Um, and I also 
just pull back as well and just um, just highlight really how significant the grant peer review process is in terms of the overall research life cycle and the direction of research. We certainly, when we were looking at um, you know, the extent of competitive grant funding and how that informs research, we found that over 60% of research outputs have some type of grant funding behind them. So you can see there that this initial stage, you might even call it the, the primary stage in the, in the research life cycle, is incredibly important in terms of what ultimately, um, what direction ultimately research takes. Yeah, and I think that I think that's an interesting point. You know, it, it it kind of speaks to the fact that this is the way that research tends to be funded. Yeah, that's right. And and I would say also, you know, it's it's a as as Matt has noticed in his um, uh, recent report. I mean, uh, the the rates by which people are actually getting funding are. are getting worse over time. So uh, even though this is kind of the gold standard for something that you need to accomplish in your career in order to kind of, uh, you know, be independent and, and maintain your own lab and, and move forward and, and uh, uh, all of these things, it's uh, nevertheless, uh, the, the funding success rates are, are rather low and continuing to get lower. Um, and I think right now, um, at least a year or two ago, the, for NIH, the, your average uh, age to get your first R01 grant, which is a fairly standard uh, uh, science grant, is, is a 41 or 42, I think. So uh, for most scientific careers, uh, people have to go through a lot of submissions of grant proposals before they actually get uh, a funding success. So absolutely. Uh, we were in talking to funders for our report around um, success rates of 10, 20, even maybe 30% um, of the total grant application pool. But um, that's a very high rejection rate. And um, I think that puts a lot of pressure on the researchers that are seeking this funding. So you can see why, uh, maybe we'll come to this in the course of the conversation, but you can see why there are calls for the peer review process to be reformed, or at least um, there's a thirst for a change of some kind. Um, and there are lots of different um, potential models talked about from a lottery process to, uh, to maybe allocating funding to universities and then tasking universities with distributing it. Yeah, I would say I would even add to that that, you know, the, the funding success rate as it gets lower and lower uh, one of the things I think it does is, is puts more and more pressure on people to make decisions and, and discriminate between uh, maybe previously they were making decisions between, you know, good and bad proposals, which might be a lot easier to do. Uh, it's much more difficult to separate between an outstanding and an excellent proposal, which I think many panels and panelists and reviewers are, are now forced to do. And that, that introduces, I think, uh, or heightens the level of subjectivity in their decision making, which I think leads to potentially to biases, which leads to the kinds of problems Matt was talking about and why people are exploring alternate uh, methods for peer review and grant funding. At one point, I was curious about you know um, who is doing this review. You know, I, I think you know those of us uh, you know who who have worked in you know kind of a corporate setting um, will find the structure of this a little bit unusual. But you know these these reviews are not being carried out by uh, you know, a dedicated team of people who do grant review all day, and that's you know their only source of income. That's their career. Um, who, who's doing this work? 
So that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think it cuts to the heart of um, some of the, the issues with the current grant peer review process. So in terms of who does the, the peer review, um, we found this is primarily academics or academic researchers. Um, and they may be doing it for a fee, as you say, but in many cases, they may be doing it for free as part of uh, what they perceive to be their contribution to research. Um, but if you look at how those reviewers or those prospective reviewers are identified, um, then you realize actually that some, what some of the challenges are of the system. We found that often those reviewers are identified by a panel or a board uh, that has already been set up and has been in place for a number of years, um, or perhaps they will be um, taken from previous, um, su previously successful applicants at that funder, um, or they will simply be recommendations from one researcher to another. Um, and I think you can see a potential danger there to the grant peer review process in terms of relying on quite a small reviewer pool, as it were, and also one that is mainly built around recommendations and interpersonal relationships and knowledge. And that can be problematic. And, and I think uh, many grant applicants can have expressed some frustration that there's a sense in which um, it's the same people making these decisions and therefore can be prone to bias and nepotism and, and so forth. Yeah, now I would. Thanks for that, Matt. I, I would. I would add to that. Actually, I know um, in the National Institutes of Health, um, the scientists are recruited. I think largely based on their expertise, but nevertheless, uh, previous success with uh, NIH funding, I think, is usually a requirement, or at least a, a highly, you know, an important criteria in their recruitment. And um, so, what happens is, is if they're uh, Many reports have shown that there's kind of a funneling of, of grant funding to a, so a small proportion of scientists uh, have a disproportionate amount of funding relative to, to everyone. So um, uh, those who don't have funding uh, are also not allowed to be part of the decision-making process of what gets funded. So it's kind of a vicious circle. Uh, and also, in addition to that, this, this not only uh, is uh, takes on a unevenness uh, across the scientific uh, landscape in terms of which reviewers are allowed to, to review, but but also uh, the funding success rates are different. Um, for instance, there was a study in 2011 about uh, how even different racial groups at NIH, uh, different applicants who have different racial groups are funded at different success rates. And so that's a, a problem because if you're funded at a lower success rate and being successfully funded by NIH is a, is a you know, requirement for being a reviewer, then that sets up an internal bias and a feedback loop that, uh, that kind of continues that um, you know, disproportionate level of funding. So uh, yeah, there's some, definitely recruitment is an issue that needs to be uh, addressed. I think, um, sorry, I was, just, I was just going to say that I think that, that that point is really interesting. And I think if we talk about um, what other research could be done uh, around the grant peer review process, one of the really interesting things would be if you could map reviewers and grant panels um, and look at the relationships between them in terms of uh, citations, co-affiliations, et cetera, uh, and look at that in the context of the, of the global 
research network. And I think if you did that, uh, and for example, if you looked at that in a national level uh, within certain large governmental funders, I think that's where you would it would really highlight quite strikingly uh, this um, this sort of this loop that uh, that yes. Steve lined, where you have the same folk uh, engaging quite regularly, uh, and that that can have an impact uh, on bias. So I think that that would be a really interesting piece of work. No, you're right. And in fact, I think there was a group that did this in Harvard. Uh, I forget the name, but uh, they, they, they looked at it um, in terms of relatedness. Of uh, They looked at the references of the proposal itself and the, the applicant compared to the references of the, of the reviewer. And they determined kind of a bibliometric or, you know, uh, looking at the similarity or overlap uh, in their publications and and their networks to see who knew who and who was related to who, at least in terms of uh, uh, scientifically who publishes in the, you know, uh, kind of the same area and is maybe co-published. And they found that uh, people who are more related uh, by their definition uh, definitely tended to give proposals a better score. Uh, so there is some relationship there. Uh, That's really interesting. I'd, I'd love to read that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... Uh, um, it's <laughs> it's it's problematic, but I think the the issue also is that the, the other alternatives are 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 also problematic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, so you're describing a system in which um, you know there's some level of insularity within the you know the reviewing community. Uh, it's hard to break into, and the entire system is being pressured by a greater number of proposals that we're seeing over time. And I just you know just to touch on really quickly, are we seeing more proposals of you know for uh, a diminishing amount of funds, or is you know broadly speaking, are we seeing you know the same or increasing number of funds, but just a lot more proposals as people vie for that money? For NIH, the proposals have been increasing, uh, I know. Uh, but, uh, uh, I, I mean, the, the budget has been increasing, but not enough at a rate that has, you know, been keeping up with the success rate. So the success rate has been kind of going down or at least been somewhat stable, I think. Um, I don't know how it is in, in the UK, Matt, but no. Um, I, would, I would echo exactly that. We, we definitely know that the application rate is going up. Um, Within our report, unfortunately, we didn't have access to um, those funding figures uh, to look at uh, those, and particularly you know, taking out inflation and things like that. Um, but I think if you were to look at it um, on, a, on a country by country basis, which is um, probably all you can do rather than uh, generalizing globally, there, there are some significant challenges that certain countries face. For example, we talked to some funders uh, that had big problems with deflation of their currency and with the global research sector being so global and um, needing researchers from very many different countries and um, research centers they were probably getting less for their um, for their local currency than they were previously and so that was a, a significant challenge for them in terms of maintaining the funding they needed for, for all of the applications they were receiving um, so I think I think it is both both the increase in applications and in some cases uh, a decrease in funds, at least in terms of real term funds. Okay, that's interesting. And and now I think it might be a good time to step back a little bit because we've already hinted at it somewhat. Um, but can you each describe the surveys that were conducted and the um, you know the reports that have resulted therefrom? Uh, okay, sure. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, 
well, we both uh, had a very similar idea to uh, to kind of look at um, uh, the people who are participating in peer review as reviewers. Uh, I think in the literature in general, there's not a lot of uh, well, for starters, there's not a lot of of data or literature or studies around peer review in general. Uh, and what does exist is mostly focused on journal peer review, so much less is on grant peer review. And what is focused on grant peer review in terms of studies understanding, you know, uh, how grant peer review works and uh, whether it's finding the right proposals and all these kinds of things, uh, largely focus on uh, things like scoring, um, but very little of it focuses on uh, the reviewers themselves. And one of the key parts to this whole process is, of course, uh, the people who participate in the process. Uh, and so not a lot of, is known about uh, specifically their demographics and what motivates them and uh, how often, what's their level of burden uh, in terms of uh, peer review, how much do they participate in peer review throughout the year, um, what types of peer reviews do they participate in, and um, and what do they think about them in terms of the quality? So that, those were some of the things that we were interested in um, in assessing. And I think probably Matt had a very similar idea. <laughs> but. Absolutely right, yes. Um, so as you mentioned, a lot of the research that's been done on peer review has been done on journal or article peer review. Uh, and in fact, we, we're one of those um, reports. So we, we did a report uh, last year, the Publons Global State of Peer Review Report which looked at journal peer review. And it was really off the back of that that we realized there was this demand for more research, um, particularly more insights on the research perspectives around grant peer review. Um, and so we decided to, to do something about that using some of the data sets that we had available to us, uh, as well as interviews. Um, so our, uh, the data behind our report is uh, firstly, we use data from our parent company, the Web of Science, um, which gives us uh, data around the citation network and specifically the ability to track um, the acknowledged funding in terms of research outputs, in terms of publications, articles, and so forth that have acknowledged the receipt of grant funding, which is where I got that uh, statistic that I mentioned earlier about 60% of global research output having some form of grant funding attached to it. So we use data from that. We also surveyed uh, just under 5,000 users from our Publons peer review community. Um, and all of those researchers had at some point or another either applied for a grant or reviewed a grant. And we asked them a series of questions and we also uh, analyzed quite extensively their free form comments, um, which I must say personally I found some of the most interesting because that's where you got um, you know, the really striking insights, um, both positive and negative, into the peer review process. Um, and then we also interviewed funders because we wanted to get some more qualitative anecdotal feedback uh, across these different research centers. And we knew how different the practices were from one country to another. So uh, just to give a couple of examples there, we interviewed the Swiss National Science Foundation, uh, the Medical Research Council, and UKRI here in the UK. Um, also, the National Centre of Science and Technology Evaluation, which is the governmental funder in Kazakhstan, um, and the European Research Council 
uh, as well as some American funders as well. So that gave us quite a broad range of experiences. And, uh, and we, we pulled all that together to try and triangulate those different data sources and, and see what the key trends were. That's, that's great. I, I should mention too, I, I forgot that since you delved into the details a little bit, I, I, uh, people are probably wondering, um, uh, AIBS is, is a non-for-profit organization, but we've been um, providing scientific services for a variety of research funders for you know, 50, 60 years. And uh, so that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's why we're interested in this in particular, is, is not only as a scientific society, but also uh, uh, as a provider of scientific services, which include peer review. Um, we've also been, uh, you know, interested in what makes reviewers tick. And uh, so we, we also sent out a survey very similarly uh, to applicants and people who have reviewed for, um, for either us or other scientific organizations in stateside in, in the US, uh, mostly biomedical uh, for the most part. Um, but uh, uh, so either, either they've been an applicant or, or, a, or a, a reviewer. And our study is a little smaller. Uh, it's more like a thousand respondents, but, um, but the results are remarkably similar. Indeed, yeah, that that was uh, you know particularly striking when we started comparing our results, and I think quite encouraging in a way yes. to know because it's that's the other thing that we should mention um, in terms of one of the main differences of any study on grant peer review as opposed to journal peer review, which is the dearth of uh, information at a global scale. So. With journal peer review, we found uh, when we did our report, we're quite lucky because there are a number of large editorial submission systems through which most journal peer review activity takes place. That's right. And if you're fortunate enough to be able to partner with one of those submission systems as, as we were, you can get information at scale about what's going on. Um, however, in the grant peer review world, generally speaking, there aren't those large service providers. Um, you tend to have national funders that have their very specific system that they've developed in-house, and they also have their own uh, very unique way of conducting the grant peer review process. So it is quite challenging to, to get those trends and insights at scale. So it's encouraging to see uh, in our reports, but also in other reports that both of us were, were looking at in our literature review, that a lot of these trends are found elsewhere. So we know that um, you know, these, these are significant issues and they are um, common to most research centers globally. I completely agree. Yeah, and that's a really interesting distinction between the um, you know between the journal side and the article side and the grant review side. Um, you know, I hadn't thought about the role of that. You know, submission systems like the one that Bioscience uses, which is Scholar One, um, would have as sort of a, a data producing you know item as well, because it, you know it is extremely widely used. And you know, if if one were partnered, one would be able to pull all sorts of uh, you know useful information for studying the peer review process because it kind of keeps track of everything. But you don't have that sort of universality on the grant review side. Uh, yeah, I, I I agree. That's a uh, different funders do uh, have different processes, and 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 you don't have access to their systems. And there's also another level of problem uh, in terms of analyzing 
data related to grant funding because there's confidentiality. These are, you know, in general, journals re review uh, scientific works that have already been completed. They may have been written up uh, and maybe they'll be tweaked after peer review, but the, the experiments have been done. Uh, with grant review, the experiments haven't even been done yet. So it's a, uh, uh, there's a bigger issue of confidentiality um, that's a, uh, that a lot of grant funders obviously take very seriously, and so it's it's hard to gain access to that data as well. Um, so that's another uh, reason why these studies were important is because uh, not everyone has access to this yet. Everyone really needs to understand what the landscape looks like. Um, and I would just add real quick, you know, uh, one of the key findings of both of our studies is I think that um, that not all reviewers participate uh, in the same level, uh, some reviewers or some scientists uh, participate in many more peer reviews than others, and that's actually a result that uh, not only is similar between our two studies, but also uh, is something that is echoed in in previous studies um, on journal peer review as well. And uh, so this this is a, a you know even though they're they're very different systems, uh, there are some common trends. I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, that issue, actually, reviewer workload, because that seems to me a really good example of the differences in the data available and why it would be useful to uh, be sharing more of this, this data, at least in terms of research purposes. Um, as you mentioned, we, we both identified this issue where a very small number of reviewers worldwide are conducting the uh, majority of the reviews but one of the things that we were able to look at in journal peer review was we were able to see how that um, breaks down when you look at what we called the review submissions gap so you could look for example at China and you can say that um, China contributes X percent of global article submissions but only X percent of global reviews yeah. and I if we were able to have that kind of uh, data anonymized, of course, but at a uh, national level, we would then be able to also start seeing some of these flows in funding. And, and I'm sure it would also show you there some interesting um, national, but also institutional um, gaps, as it were, in terms of you know who's perhaps submitting the most applications versus who's contributing uh, the most in terms of reviews. And, and that would, potentially lead to some useful reforms uh, about spreading that workload. Absolutely. Actually, I can tell you, I, I think um, in terms of NIH, I know that they know that the, the, the funding is not uniform across all states, for instance, and, and I don't believe it's uniform across all institutions either. Uh, so, uh, and they are, they do have some programs specifically um, created to mitigate that. But if you look at the uh, the rosters, which are public, by the way, for NIH, uh, you can see that they represent, uh, you know, similar proportions of the states that get the most funding, and you know, tend to be well represented on those um, uh, panels. And so, uh, yeah, I uh, I think there's definitely uh, what you said is absolutely true. <laughs> And I, th I think that brings us to, you know, kind of an interesting question, which is, you know, we have this system that's largely been uninterrogated, uh, you know, at least by, you know, scientific means over the years. But now, you know, we kind of have an idea from these two surveys of uh, the sentiment that people feel toward it. 
And I'm kind of wondering, you know, what did you find? How do people think of this system? Uh, do they like it? Should it be overhauled? Would, you know, do funders and, you know, participants want to throw it out? Uh, what's, what's the response been like? I think that's probably for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very gracious of you. Um, well, so I would start by saying, uh, by focusing on the positive uh, at the outset, which is, uh, so when, when we asked um, researchers, uh, first of all, you know, what, what they feel about the peer review process and if they would agree with the statement that peer review is the best method we have for ensuring we fund the right research, uh, when you ask that question, uh, the vast majority of researchers agree that peer review is indeed the best method. So in our case, I believe the figure is 78% of researchers. Um, so there's certainly a lot of support for peer review and the peer review remains as relevant now as it ever was. And in fact, uh, as, as I think we'll talk about, you know, uh, arguably even more so um, than it was in the past. Um, however, when you when you break those responses down and you ask follow-up questions about particular aspects of the peer review process, such as um, how the peer review process treats junior researchers versus uh, more senior researchers, uh, whether or not it encourages innovative or risky research and other measures, for example, diversity as well, uh, that's where you see that the same researchers that feel that peer review is the best method that we have also draw attention to a number of issues with it. Uh, and those issues are the ones that I've just outlined. So whether it funds innovative research, whether uh, it's fair in terms of uh, junior researchers. I thought that uh, statistic that Steve mentioned earlier about the, um, the average age for the first grant ap application, uh, the grant award being made was, was fascinating. Um, so we do know that there are issues um, and we'll come on to this, I know, but there are some obvious areas where improvements can be made. Um, and I think if we look at some of the, I wouldn't say extreme, but some of the um, radical and, uh, and very different proposals that are around there at the moment for how we should evaluate grant applications, for example, lottery systems. Uh, one thing that was striking to me was funders and researchers talking about the role of peer review in terms of the accountability and transparency of the process. So whether or not it uh, always funds the best research, it's certainly seen as a way of ensuring accountability and giving researchers the confidence that they will be evaluated by experts in their field. As soon as you start to bring in uh, other measures that don't bring in experts and fellow researchers, I think that's where trust in the system starts to break down. And certainly we saw a number of complaints about national funding systems where it was perceived that um, politicians or civil servants were determining the flow of funding more than their fellow researchers. What's your, what are your thoughts, Steve? That's, I think that would be a good introduction to this. this yeah, question. no, I, I agree. That's, that's, and I should say one thing, uh, is that even though some of these alternative systems are definitely possibilities, uh, uh, very few of them have actually been done in real life and, and tested to see whether they actually do, um, you know, promote better science or less anti-innovation and, and, you know, or less conservative than, than peer review. And have. Uh, so, you know, there's no guarantee that there will be any, um, you know, 
improvement there, although it, it's all exists in the theoretical right now. Um, so uh, that's one thing. But uh, second, I would say, you know, in addition to all of that, in, in addition to uh, reviewers feeling that this maybe is the best process, but there are some problems with it, I think uh, another major concern is really the sustainability of it and to make sure that uh, if we do continue using this process that, it, you know, that changes don't need to be made in the future to, to uh, keep it running. And uh, I guess um, that harkens back to what we were speaking about earlier that, uh, the, you know, we found, uh, I think you found something very similar where a very small percentage of, of, uh, of reviewers did a, a large, disproportionately large uh, portion of the reviews that were seen in our uh, relative surveys. And uh, so, in fact, I think, um, many times they measure inequality through something called a Palma ratio. And uh, we found a, a, a ratio of, of a, something like, let's see, what was it? It was uh, something along the lines of the, the top 10% reviewed three times the amount as the bottom 40% of respondents. So it's, you know, it's, it's substantial, the differences between uh, people reviewing the most and people reviewing the least. Uh, and so is that sustainable? And when you ask, one of the things that we asked in our survey was, uh, what is, what's the absolute maximum you can, you can put towards peer review? Um, you know, what would you say is the, 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 the limit in terms of how many hours you have to actually spend? And uh, the people that work the most, obviously, uh, would make sense that they're at closest to the limit. And uh, in some cases, it seems uh, as close as 90%. Uh, so this is a problem in the sense that uh, not only is peer review maybe the best system uh, or it may not but certainly either way uh, if, if we choose to use it we, we definitely have to um, take into consideration where the workload is and and where people may be hitting uh, hitting their limits absolutely I, I I think that those figures are really interesting um, we we had similar figures like exposed from it a slight yeah. way of looking at the numbers. Um, for us, we found that 4% of reviewers contributed 25% of reviews. Yeah. And that was a very conservative uh, assessment as well, using our 5,000 researchers. Uh, I'm sure that in reality, um, it's actually uh, much worse than that. Um, and I think that it was clear from some of the freeform comments from our researchers that there are very practical steps that funders can take to try and alleviate this. For example, we know that there are some funders already experimenting with the idea of um, a, an initial round of the application process where a researcher only needs to submit a very brief uh, summary of their proposed research. And then that goes through um, a quality control phase and, and if um, if it's decided that yes the funder would be interested in seeing a more detailed proposal then the researcher goes away and does that and I think that would be useful to look at for other funders because you can see there you're saving time not just from the reviewers but also from the applicants themselves um, oh, you're right. it's worth pointing out that, but that it's not just the reviewers that find or at least those reviewers that are reviewing a lot. It's not just those guys that are finding they're spending a lot of time on this. Also, applicants are finding they're having to spend time, which uh, if they 
ultimately feel that the success rates are not reasonably achievable, um, they feel is wasted. So no, that's, that's, that's true. I think at the National Institute of Health uh, Center for Scientific Review reviews 80,000 proposals a year or something like that. It's, it's ridiculously high. Um, and I would just interject real quick that, uh, you know, as far as I understand it, one of the successful strategies I've heard uh, to reduce um, proposal loads is uh, the National Science Foundation has some of its directorates, I believe, where they, they don't have these RFPs, these requests for proposals that have specific deadlines, because many times what happens is there'll be two or three deadlines per year. And as a researcher, you're trying to hit those deadlines to get a grant application to each one because you know if only 20% are funded then you've got to get you know five in per year in order to guarantee you get one uh, funded or, or at least up your chances of it and um, so one of the things that they've done is they've they've uh, they've removed the deadline and they found that actually it results in a, a decrease in the number of proposals and that people tend to then put their energy more towards something that they really Thing will win, and so they tend to get, I think, better proposals. At least anecdotally, that's what I've heard. Uh, and certainly, the numbers of proposals per year have gone down. Uh, so that might be another potential uh, strategy. It sounds like there are some ideas on the table that may help to, you know, alleviate these problems and increase the sustainability. Uh, you know, are, are there any others? You know, what, what role does transparency play in this process? You know, I, I think we, we talked briefly about earlier that this is largely a, you know, very blinded and very private process, obviously for the purpose of keeping the research that has yet to be conducted from, uh, you know, uh, being overly revealed and potentially scooped. What are, what are some other avenues that might be explored? Matt, your your study shows very convincingly that, I mean, I think we had both found that people are motivated largely to review as a service to the community um, and not by being paid by honoraria and whatnot, um, but that as a service, they want to be recognized as such, as, as, as doing something and have that count towards, you know, uh, their uh, building of their CV and their, their um, you know, their uh, adding to their career trajectory. I mean, a lot of times, uh, uh, you know, re scientists are, are evaluated for tenure based on such things as, as a peer review service. And so actually one of the great things that Publons has done is, is uh, created a venue where you can actually log in where you, you know, uh, participated in peer review. And um, so I think uh, uh, one of the things that, that uh, uh, Matt's study has shown is that people want to have a, a you know a level of recognition so, uh, I don't know if Matt you want to speak more to that but I thought that was very uh, I was most impressed by that that was a great result well I thank you Steve you, you teed me up brilliantly there <laughs> um, you're no, absolutely right I think that um, so we asked researchers you know what they thought would improve the grant peer review process um, and 90% of respondents thought that greater recognition of their grant peer review work would improve the process. Um, and there are, there are many ways of breaking that down. Um, but before I do that, it's worth also uh, noting that when you are, ask researchers then to look at a list of, um, of areas that, that could be improved um, and how they would rank those in terms of importance, Cash comes quite low down. It comes six after um, other areas such as training and greater guidelines and and, and this issue of recognition. Um, Same thing. <laughs> absolutely. 
Uh, and then when you ask um, researchers a bit more about why that is, um, you know, funders might be interested to know that many researchers feel that either they can't take the cash because they have a conflict or maybe they don't want to get into the, the whole tax situation. Uh, sometimes I've heard of funders from emerging research centers that are desperately trying to get reviewers outside of their country because they don't have uh, the particular experts they need and also where they do there's a conflict of interest um, and yet in doing so they are offering cash and it's being perceived by um, researchers on the other side of the world in UK, Australia, wherever as um, you know oh look there's another um, dodgy email in my account uh, so they're not actually getting any response to those queries so I think that um, cash is uh, first of all it's not viable we know for many uh, funders, but it's encouraging as well that it, it's it's not considered to be something that really motivates reviewers. What does motivate them is something that ultimately shows their contribution to the field and helps advance their career and hopefully help advance future grant applications. And we know that many uh, funders now ask applicants to include their review contributions in their their proposals um, and we also know that universities are starting to look at peer review as another measure alongside publications and citations so I think there's definitely uh, something there that um, a service provider like Publons can help with but also that, that funders and universities can close the loop on uh, and I think that would help both bring more researchers to the peer review process and re-energize those reviewers that are already there and, and feeling undervalued. Yeah. Um, then the, the other aspects of the, um, the reforms that, that uh, would help with the process, I think. Um, James, you alighted on it when you talked about transparency. Um, we know that a number of reviewers are frustrated that after they've reviewed an application, they don't hear any more after that as to whether it was funded, uh, what the outputs were, um, why it may not have been funded, and so on. Um, and there's a real hunger for, for being able to, um, uh, to follow up on that. I mean, it's fairly common practice now that for a journal peer reviewer, you would be notified by the publisher that the article you reviewed has gone on to be published. Um, and that's a great way for the publisher of re-engaging the reviewer um, who is also a prospective author uh, and reader of their content with their work. So I think I can see um, similar, um, a similar line being taken on grant applications and, and subsequent grant awards as really helping uh, the funders build their, their community. Um, and also I can see benefits there in terms of maintaining the trust and accountability of the peer review process. If, if there are ways of making it more transparent, whether that's um, publishing the reviewer identity, which may not be appropriate in, um, in certain contexts, or, or simply just publishing the reviewer report. Um, I think experiments like that would, would help open up the process uh, and help alleviate some of those concerns researchers have around uh, the, the relative biases that we talked about at the outset. I would also argue too, you know, one of the things that we found in our survey was that uh, career stage obviously uh, was, you know, a big predictor of, of a review 
participation. And uh, where mostly senior uh, scientists were involved in peer review. And so junior scientists were uh, less so. And yet, uh, again, when they are involved, uh, it's, it's much more important for a junior scientist who may not have their own R01, who may, uh, for this transparency, that it, it counts a lot more for them. And, uh, they're looking for, um, uh, you know, uh, things to show that they've, they've engaged in the system and, um, you know, done their service. And it, like I say, it helps people with tenure and things like that. So it's also, it's important, I think, for early uh, stage uh, career scientists uh, to have this venue for transparency. Um, and uh, not only for, for journal review, but one particular grant review, and it may showcase the inequities there uh, with your data, actually. Uh, and that may be another study. Uh, absolutely, absolutely right. I mean, I, I, I spoke to one grant panel member who had uh, been a member of um, a number of UK funders um, uh, and their, their grant boards, and she was talking to me of the benefits of bringing early career researchers actually into the room for those grant panel conversations, um, just so that they can get exposure to how the process works and what is considered important in an application, what success looks like, and so on. Um, and I can certainly see that you know there could be scope for sort of mentoring type program where a more senior researcher, perhaps uh, a supervisor uh, or department head, could nurture a, an early career researcher through a, a grant application review. Um, and they would learn so much from reviewing a grant application in terms of how to successfully structure it and what the funder is looking for. So it would benefit both the researcher and ultimately the funder. That's right. And just to add, I think, you know, just to make it slightly more public, I mean, I think uh, uh, both Matt and I are, are, are interested in potentially having uh, AIBS and Publons work together to, to help um, increase transparency uh, with some of our peer reviews. Uh, we still haven't worked out all the mechanics yet, but uh, uh, there's a commitment, I think, on, on both parties to, to try and see this through, for what that's worth. Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm, and I'm really interested in in monitoring that as well as we experiment with it. I think um, certainly our engagement with researchers in terms of surveys like this is going to continue. Um, and we think it'd be interesting to see, you know, once you've offered a researcher recognition for their grant in, in some of a grant review, sorry, uh, in some publicly available way, does that then lead to behavioral changes? Does that speed up the process? Does it bring in more quality? Does it have an impact? when they subsequently apply for grants. You know. So I think um, continuing to monitor this uh, through data sets like this would be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like there are some areas for future collaboration and fruitful areas for future research. Uh, anyway, I think we've covered a lot of good ground today. So I would just like to thank both of you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you very much, James. It was a great opportunity. Thank you, James. Absolutely. It was a great opportunity. Thank you for having us both. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.